Morning. That was men's retreat. You guys want to try that again? How was men's retreat? Awesome. It was, it was indeed a wonderful time, and uh, I commend uh, you all to have conversations with husbands and brothers and friends and roommates who went, uh, an old friend and mentor of mine there to deliver the word and, and teach us gospel stories and narratives. Uh, it was a great joy. Uh, but it is also a great joy to return here to the business at hand, which is that we would hear the gospel, that we would afresh hear the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news, the gospel that Paul has been teaching and, you know, exposing our sin in the midst of in his letter to the churches of Galatia. So, if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to open up to the book of Galatians. Today, we're going to continue our journey, beginning in chapter 5, verse 1. And this is God's word. And we should hear it and receive it as such. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace, for through the Holy Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning confessing many notions of freedom. Lord, it's a word we love growing up, where we are in the moment in time that we are, with the political system and history that we have. Expose us this morning to the imitations of the freedom that you are speaking of to us in this letter. God, come and show us true freedom. Come and be for us true and lasting freedom. God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that we know who and how We have freedom. Come and reveal yourself to us. Give us eyes that we would see and ears that we would hear and hearts that will receive your definitions, replacing ours. 
We ask you to do this in the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people agree. If you uh, begin to study the book of Galatians, it can at first blush seem challenging to divide the book of Galatians into sections. Uh, In some ways, it's not slick or clean. It's a long letter. We give it chapters. Paul didn't. But we use those divisions and breaks and our grammar and punctuation and divisions and formatting, we use those things as helpful tools, we suppose, to understand what Paul is singularly communicating in the letter that he sent. So as a rule of thumb, I want to offer you these kind of three sections of Galatians. The first is to understand the first two chapters as a biography of Paul's authority. These first two chapters, Paul is trying to both establish his apostolic independence. Why is he an apostle? Is it because he learned from Peter? Is that what made him an apostle? No. It was because Christ called him directly into that ministry. And then out of that, the overflow of some events and some circumstances that make Paul both an authority of this situation, but also personally invested in the people and the churches that are at risk, that are in danger of losing, muddling, or altogether rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we think of the first two chapters, it's really helpful to think of them through this category, biography. Second, we see in chapters three and four, sort of a pure theology Paul has established his authority already and now begins to exercise that authority in teaching historical truths. Let's be very clear. Paul has no interest in creating something new. Paul is trying to help all of us understand the underpinnings of the gospel in Scripture as God has revealed himself, and in the function of how we know and study who the Lord is, how he operates, what has he done. Sometimes we call this, in these two chapters, chapter 3 and chapter 4, a focus on the indicatives. What is true is the central question of Paul's uh, time spent in those two chapters. And today we come to the third section. Chapters five and six are very much fixated on practical theology. Not theology proper, but theology in its outworkings. It's not just abstract truth 
that we talk about when we talk about the gospel, nor is it merely historical events that we talk about when we talk about the gospel. We are talking about how God has brought an unholy people to himself. And it presupposes relationship. So when we look at chapters 5 and 6, it's not, now this is how you get this theology. That would be the undoing of everything Paul has said thus far in Galatians. Sometimes I giggle when I see Roman Catholic theologians or priests look at 5.1 and say, see, we've been saying it's faith in action. No, 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 no. Paul begins this section with these words, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. And do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Those who seek to unite their best efforts with Christ's finished work do so assuming that Christ has done his part. Now you must do yours. That's why you have the introduction now of these imperatives. They must how, this is the wrong thinking, synergize with the indicatives. The indicatives are true, but only in so far as you, dot, 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 fill in the blank. So when we see Paul engaging in this practical theology, it does speak to, and maybe even center on, the questions surrounding ethics. Not just what is true, but how does that truth work out in the life of an individual Christian? Well, we have just spent our time looking at, all the way back into Genesis, the relationship that the people of God are supposed to understand having to Abraham. Born of Sarah, the free woman. So wrongly, there are some who say, well, we're born free. No, we are reborn free. So let us consider for a moment our own notions of freedom. When we say it's for freedom that Christ has set us free, we have our own narratives about the nature, substance, purpose, or even definition of freedom. And we as Americans in the 21st century, we love freedom. Yes? I don't think you love it enough. Do we love freedom? Isn't that one of the dominant narratives of our life, our day-to-day -day conversations? We love freedom. But do we know freedom? Do we just have imagined ideals? 
Do we have lived experiences of freedom? I can remember the very first time that I was bound and strapped into an MRI machine, feeling the claustrophobic terror of being trapped. Nobody would call it enslavement, right? Just 45 minutes with your head on a pillow, your arms hugging yourself, and some, you know, seatbelts keeping you in line. But in my heart, in my eyeballs, I did not feel free. I felt ensnared. I felt constrained. How many of you like feeling constrained? It's funny. Most of the times when we think about freedom, we do think in terms of the absence of constraint. But if you were to ask my wife, my favorite times when we are together is when we are constrained in each other's arms. Uh, You kids might call it spooning. If you're really little, ask your parents about spooning. You're welcome, parents. But the arms of a loved one very rarely feels like a constraint, even if they're gripping you, binding you, holding them, holding you to them. But the MRI machine and I did not have the kind of affection that Liz and I do. So we talk about freedom a lot. And we recognize, I think sort of implicitly, that there are a lot of types of freedom. There's, I don't know, more than one kind or type of freedom. For example, we're Americans, we think political freedom, right? We love the Bill of Rights. We love the idea of freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of press and information. We love these rights, not because the government gives them to us, but because they're a reflection of God's creative order in giving these things. We also like to think about creative freedom. Sometimes when you are constrained in an art project, do it with clay, and you're like, this would be way better on a painting, we can feel constrained by the assignment, by the professor, by the teacher. We really, really expect to have creative freedom in our artistry, or in our vocation. We also believe in emotional freedom, yes? It's really hard when you're in an argument with somebody and they're saying to you, you should not feel that way. (laughs) How successful has that been for y'all? It's not so successful for me. Instead, we want to cultivate for ourselves in our relationships, especially in raising our kids, the importance of emotional freedom. You are allowed to be mad. 
you are not allowed to hit your sister because you're mad. Does that make sense? And the rules of the home are constraints upon the freedom of how they use their anger. But we believe in emotional freedom. How about economic freedom? You guys like compulsory anything? Taxes? Ooh, I said taxes. What about HOAs? HOAs right now are really affecting real estate in Miami. Neglected buildings that have not been popular to raise uh, HOA fee are now pricing people out of ownership of those condos, houses, apartments because of the lack of freedom and individual choice that you have about the care, color, size of things on your own property. What about freedom of conscience? One of the things I love about our denomination is the recognition that we should not, must not bind the conscience of a minister. If they agree and, and, and believe what we believe and live how we expect each other to live in agreement, in love, in fellowship, in covenant, then we also don't seek to say, well, you can't ever teach any of these things. If you believe these things, you're just kind of not one of us. So we bless you, but like this is going to be a bad fit. But we do not want to bind the conscience of another man. He can submit himself to that fellowship, but we will not force it. What about relational freedom? The right to marry whom you wish. There's a controversial one. What about the right to bear a certain number of children? Different states in the last century, different governments have said two kids, one kid, boys, girls. And there begins to be a constraining force that hinders relational freedom. Freedom to homeschool. Freedom to opt out. Freedom to, freedom to, freedom to. We have many understandings and expectations and cultural dynamics that surround the question of freedom. The highest American version of this is probably the combination of the freedom of self-determination and a libertarian freedom. The freedom to be left alone. To be unencumbered, unhindered. I am not saying that all of that is bad, nor am I saying all of that is great. What I'm saying is that that's what we are generally thinking when we come to the question of what is the nature of the freedom Paul is describing here, because Paul is not a 21st century American. So we, as always, want to pursue an understanding of what the author meant 
when this was penned. So let me ask you a couple of questions. First, can freedom be slavery? Yeah. Yeah. I don't mean to puff up his head, but Steve Holmberger was the first man to introduce to me that idea. I was given a talk on Romans 6 in a series at Ivy Large Groups many years ago. And I asked Steve to come and, and speak one of those nights. And to be fair, my wife had been sniffing around this idea for a couple of years. That there was something there in Romans 6 that was not a normal part of our regular conversation. The question of what does it mean that we are set free by serving a new master? Freed from the slavery of, as we will see in a little bit, our triple slaveholders, sin, death, the devil. But that we become slaves of righteousness, servants of Christ. It's not that we become king, it's that we move from one kingdom to another. So as Steve was teaching the college students I was ministering to, he was ministering to me the promise that the power of sin in my life is broken and that I have moved from death to life. Doesn't mean that I don't battle sin. Oh, I battle sin. We will battle sin until our final breath or until the Lord returns. But the power of sin is broken because my citizenship is changed. No longer a slave to myself, my sin. No longer subservient to death, destruction, and the schemes of the devil. So is there a freedom that we would describe as free that is in truth slavery? When we herald the notion of freedom, we must be sure that we understand the freedom that this is discussing. So as we begin chapter 5 in this first verse, let us hear once again Paul declaring to us that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Another way of saying this is that Christ has freed you to be free. So be free. Isn't that awesome? Christ has freed you to be what you weren't before, free. So then how do I live? Be free. That is a great bumper sticker. It's a harder sermon. It's even harder day in, day out over decades of your life. But this is the central issue that causes Paul to write the letter in the first place. 
They have their freedom. They are free. But they want to return to slavery. They want to bring others back into slavery. You want to leave the kingdom you've been adopted into and go back to the one that can never work? Remember, Paul has outlined two ways of living. Living by the law and its demands with the requirement that you do so perfectly and never not perfectly. It's not that you achieve perfect. It's that you must have always had it and never lost it. Which we saw for many weeks is a losing battle. You have already lost that battle because your forefather Adam lost that battle. Or you can live by faith. As Martin Luther strained to understand all those years ago. It's the righteous who live by faith, not by merit, not by works, not by adding what they've done and asking God to make up the gap, to fill in the errors, few though they might be. When we see here this construction of Christ freeing us so that we can be free, and then the imperative command, be free, we can far too easily be anesthetized to a large number of enslavers, but calling it freedom. In other words, the devil who... We saw yesterday and the night before Kevin Green call a taker, which has arrested my heart. The devil's a taker. That's what it means when Jesus says the devil's a thief. Well, yeah, thieves steal. And I don't want my stuff stolen, but I seem removed from that moment. When I talk about what's stolen from me, it's very rarely stolen from my grasp. But if someone takes from me, it presupposes relationship and personal wrought fear. Well, we have, as humans, three enslavers. Sin, death, the devil. Why does this matter? It matters because we have been set free by Christ and are commanded to live out that freedom. Listen to John Stott as he makes sense of these ideas. Freedom, John Stott says, from my silly little self in order to live responsibly in love for God and for others. Freedom from my silly little self in order to live responsibly in love for God and in love for others. 
That's the best form of freedom. But I think it's important for us also to ask the question, is freedom itself always a virtue? I think most of our culture would quickly say yes. Freedom, by its existence, is definitionally always a virtue. And this is where we say no. I need to be mastered by God. And those friendly constraints are for my good. I am better off, not worse off, under the constraints of my loving Father. This has practical truth for every kid living in your parents' home right now. With every guardian who oversees you in day-to-day life, they do not put constraints on you because they don't like you. They put constraints on you because they love you at great cost to themselves, at great cost to Christ. So freedom If we mean this by a libertarian pure definition, it is not always a virtue. It can sometimes be a curse. Ask Cain how free he felt with the mark of God to wander aimlessly alone all his days. There's a sense in which he had freedom I don't think anybody in this room is signing up for that deal. Biblical freedom is freedom in Jesus Christ. When he says, for Christ has set us free, and then implores us, urges us, commands us to stand firm, it's not stand firm to be free. It's stand firm in the freedom you've been given. Do not return to the yoke of slavery. If you read the Old Testament in a large scale, you will see that there is almost always a group of people living in the province of Judah desperate to return to Egypt. And it strikes me funny. It strikes me sad. It can strike me confused at times. You liked being a slave? That's preposterous. Until I think about my relationship with my sin. And then I go, oh, my sin is the bricks that I want to return. That's bad. I'm bad. Why is that there? Because I need to be set free from myself. The tyranny of self. I need a rescuer who comes and delivers me from the very thing I will hold on to to the very end. Me. I will give up. I will give up. I will give up. In my unregenerate heart, I would never surrender me to anyone. I could surrender time. I could surrender mission. I might even surrender family members. But you ain't coming to get me. And Jesus says, you only have freedom 
if I get you. And I'm not going to wait for your sincere desire. I'm going to give you a new heart. And then, oh, who looked? Sincere desire. I'm not going to rely on my work. I'm going to get a new heart who says, oh, I want his work. And then we see Christ and we cling. So freedom itself is not always a virtue. The best forms of freedom that the Bible talks about are found in Jesus Christ. Not the path that he might lay out for you to walk. Freedom is not found in obedience to the commandments of God. Freedom is not found in the absence of the rule of God. That's the form of freedom that our secular culture is fascinated with right now. We don't want freedom of religion. We want freedom from religion. And I say, I want freedom from religion too. All imitated forms. I want the true religion of Christ. So let's think about biblical freedom through this lens just for a moment. We are born into slavery. The Bible has two chapters at the very beginning where there is not slavery. And then after that, everyone born is born into slavery. Through the mystical and physical union we have with our forefather Adam, we are born into the slavery of sin. And that Sin affects every aspect of my being. That sin taints, corrupts, perverts every sense in which I can view myself. Through all the offices I hold and all the affections that I have, all the nobility I could ever muster, sin affects every aspect of my being. Because... So too did that happen to Adam by his own hand. Again, we turn to the commentators of old. Hear this. Our former state in Scripture is portrayed as a slavery. Jesus Christ as a liberator. Conversion as an act of emancipation. And the Christian life as a life of freedom. Give you that again. Our former state is portrayed as a slavery. Jesus Christ as a liberator. Conversion as an act of emancipation and the Christian life as a life lived in freedom. Conversion as an act of emancipation. Man, we don't write like that anymore. So when we consider the tyrants that humanity has, these triple enslavers, we see that the emancipation rendered by Christ through the work of his spirit in the moment of conversion is a release from captivity, from our old... Slaveholders, sin, death, and the devil. 
Consider what it means that we're born into sin. Genesis 8.21, after Noah's flood, Noah and the animals are coming off the ark and they're reestablishing on this hillside or mountainside. And Noah grabs some rocks and puts them together and makes an altar and sacrifices some of the clean animals. We didn't lose any species but sacrifices some of the clean animals as an offering to God, who himself, sort of metaphorically, inhales the sweet aroma of that sacrifice. What Noah is saying is, I have life because of your mercy. Because you spoke to me and guided me and guarded me and led me, I and these objects of your creation have lived through a severe judgment of God upon the earth. That alone can be offensive for us, right? That God would judge the earth. I mean, how bad could we have been, right? We're just just people. As God smells the pleasing aroma of the sacrifice that Noah has offered, he is pleased. And we go, all right, so we're off to a new start. Let's get it going. We've got this. The bad and the sin and the judgment, that's all been dealt with. Let's just move forward renewed. (laughs) And God says, after the judgment, I will never again curse the ground because of man. And we go, yeah, baby, yeah, that's what I need. Let's get this curse of the ground, this curse that, that, that came upon Adam, that, that, that all the sweat of his brow and the thorns, and the th- let's get rid of that stuff, God. And that whole sin problem, thank you for dealing with that. And then God says, for the intention of man's heart is evil from before, from his youth, from his humanity, from his being formed in the womb of his mother. What? If you're reading Genesis and you don't know anything else that's happening in the rest of the book, you get to that line and it jumps off the page. Wait, you just made this glorious problem, promise, excuse me, glorious promise to a problematic people. If all they want to do is evil, then all they will do is evil, and we're going to be right back here. We're going to need another judgment. Yeah. Right? Is that not the cross of Christ? We sometimes think of what we get, but not what it is. It's the judgment of God upon all of our evil from our youth to our final breath. We are born as slaves. Slaves to sin. Slaves to self-fascination. Slaves to self-comfort. Or at least, 
We want the right to choose when we are willing to suffer. How desperately wicked. And the taker, the devil, speaks to us accusing God of being what he is. A taker, a withholder. Someone who does not give freely. Someone who does not give generously. But this is not true. One of the things that the devil uses is fear of death. The state of death is awful. It's scary. If you talk to college kids and teens these days, and you ask them, what scares you about death? In fact, you might try that at the lunch table today. What scares you about death? I think what undergirds most of those answers is uncertainty. Who really knows what's on the other side? Who really knows if there's another side? We are destined to die. If you're reading Genesis 5, you will see so-and-so lived so-and-so many years, and then he died. And so-and-so, born of such-and-such, lived so many years, and then he died. And then he died, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. And when you're on like seven deaths, You're like, what is happening? Mortality is happening. Part of being born into the tyranny of our enslavers is not just that we're born into sin, but we're also born as mortal beings destined to die. Well, when did we become mortal? having been made mortal by God's curse against Adam's sin. Listen to Genesis 2, 15 through 18. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil... You shall not eat. Why? For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Our mortality comes in the fall. And the rebellion against God's given limitations. This is one of those moments where they were much better off constrained from the tree than free to eat the tree. They were warned that mortality follows. And does mortality follow? We're still seeing it borne out. So, does Christ solve the question and challenge and fear of death? Yes. How? Because we are set free from death by his resurrection. If we are in Christ, death is not the end of us. 
we will be promised by God, raised in eternal life. Paul will go on to call that, part of that, hope of righteousness. Because you know you live in a body that is not fully righteous, yes? Not just because of its frailties, but also because of its desires. And this is part of our enslavement. That we need to be set free from sin, set free from death, and also set free from the tormenting evil of a personal villain, the devil. But Jesus has, in his life and death and resurrection, broken the devil's stranglehold on humanity. In fact, James whispers to the church in the book of James, chapter 4, verse 7, Resist the devil and he must flee. Resist the devil and he will flee. Listen to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. God partook of flesh and blood, these same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong, what's the word? This is not my idea, y'all. This is the testimony of Scripture that we in Christ are set free from these tyrannies, from these enslavers. And these slave masters do no longer own you. Why do we live like we are owned by anyone or anything than Christ? Because we are not standing firm in the freedom we've been given. It's one of the ultimate promises of God's redeeming work and power. That the power of sin that we were born under and into by Christ on the cross at the moment of your conversion as saving faith unites you to Christ. The power of the sin nature that you were born with and you never knew not is broken and you are given a new master you are led in holy righteousness instead of unholy slavery but not only is the power of sin broken the penalty of sin is broken this is the cross the judgment of God and the wrath of God poured out in the darkness of midday upon Jesus Christ as atoning payment, rendering the punished curses upon himself that we would be set free and know those penalties just a smidge or not at all. A little bit of wrath reserved for you, a little bit of punishment all set to be yours, 
Or does the cross of Christ empty the Father's wrath towards you because you are in Christ and his son has paid that penalty? He instead gives you blessings. So the power of sin is broken. The penalty of sin is broken. And the presence of sin is being taken from you. You might say slowly. And God would say perfectly. Being taken from you. And one day you and I will get to live together. In a place. Without sin. So. How does Christ set us free? How do we live and stand firm in this freedom that we have been given? We grab hold of the cross and our sin is dealt with. Our fear of death is taken as we trust in the power, purpose, and promise of the empty tomb. And the devil, the old tyrant, We trust in the finished and victorious work of Jesus Christ. His righteous life, his atoning death, and his vindicating resurrection. So then we ask, with these truths at the forefront of our minds, at the very onset of our faith in Christ, the very first breath of freedom we have been given, how then do we live? We live in the power of his Holy Spirit. And for the next few weeks, I'm going to step out of the pulpit and ask Steve Holmberger to come into the pulpit. And he is, in part, going to lead you in a better and fuller understanding from a slightly different angle than Paul's giving us in Galatians. But it's still Paul because it's going to come from Ephesians. So be excited. Be ready and thirsty and hungry. For the word will come and the spirit will do his work. Amen? Amen. So then how do we live? We live free. Seeking Christ. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. To be renewed day by day. Amen? Amen? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we give you abundant thanks and praise that you have taught us freedom, that you have exposed imitations of freedom, perhaps. God, we ask your spirit to come and speak, to convict us of our sin and misery, to show us our foolish schemes and plans. God, free us from our suspicions of your goodness, our skepticism of your power at work in us, Forgive us for moments of fear and doubt and renew and strengthen us. That we would live as you have called us to live. That we would live as you have empowered us to live. And that you would grow us in the grace of your son Jesus Christ. That he would be glorified. That we would be blessed. We ask it in the name of our our Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ, and all God's people agree.